Drew, I found my first gray hair, and I am not saying the podcast is to blame for this, but I'm not saying it's not. Okay, okay. <laughs> now let's do it. Three, two. Hi, D. Hi, D. How are you? What's going on? What's new? What's happening? Well, besides my single gray hair, nothing. Oh, my God. <laughs> What's new with you, Jet Setter, world traveler? Actually, I have taken this podcast back to Michigan, oh, and circle. we are back to the roots. We're back to the roots, visiting family, Nice. went to Niagara Falls, did a little show there, and yeah, here we are. So what's our drink today from Grandpa's Little Black Book? Oh, this is a good one. I thought that this drink would be very fitting, considering that what you know, goes on in this episode, and it's called The Manhunter. Mm. It's made with one and one-third ounce of bourbon, a third ounce of dry vermouth, a third ounce of, of cherry brandy. Stir it with ice cubes and stir it in your glass. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you love it? I do like this one. I feel like you might need to be, I need to send you over Grandpa's Little Black Book because I don't think you're liking the drinks that I'm choosing. <laughs> This one is different. I'm not a bourbon girl. My husband, mm-hmm. he loves bourbon, but he was proud that I, I liked this one. Okay, good, good. Well, let's stop dilly-dallying. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Forensic Files Duo Podcast, where we recap, review, and provide updates on the cases featured on the OG true crime TV show, Forensic Files. A show that Drew has only very recently learned of, but blindly agreed to do this podcast with me, which is the definition of trust. <laughs> I honestly think I'm doing very good because I find myself when I'm promoting our podcast to new friends and family. Some of them actually are like me and never have heard of the show. And I have impressed myself a couple of times with how I explain what forensics science, not acting is, and how the show is structured. I mean, I know for a fact that some of the words sound like I may have made them up, which I might have. <laughs> considering the look of confusion on their faces after I talk about it. It's really, it's, but I, I feel, I feel accomplished. I feel accomplished. You should. I think you are doing so good considering everything that has just gotten thrown at you every time we record. You're doing and great. And you, it's been both of us. Every time like we both record, like stuff has gotten thrown at both of yeah, us. But. Yeah. Life, life has a funny way of doing that. Yeah. So now for our regular disclaimer, we understand that we will be discussing a lot of sensitive topics. So Although we may laugh at times, please remember that we are laughing at ourselves and ourselves only. We are not making light of what the victims and their families have gone through or may continue to be going through. And in an effort to use the public's overall interest in the show Forensic Files and leverage the power of digital media, once the episode coverage is over, we will highlight two missing person cases, a case that is currently on the BIA's Missing and Murdered Indigenous People database, and another on the Black and Missing Foundations website. Now, before we get started, I wanted to mention a quick note about our last episode. I always said I would provide updates if questions come through or anything like that. Now, Mm -hmm. if you haven't listened yet, pause this episode, go take a listen, then come back and join us. Or don't, whatever. You're adults. I'm not the boss of you. A few people were asking why no one was charged in the shooting of Trey Cooley and the Forensic Files episode. They just never got into that. Now, without any legal knowledge to back this up, all Drew and I could gather is that multiple factors influenced the decision to rule that case an accident. Mm -hmm. After reading that article I shared at the update at the end, we think the local police probably had way too many connections to this gun range. And if this happened today, I wonder if it would be grounds for pulling in Mm -hmm. investigators from a different jurisdiction just due to conflict of interest. Yeah. But this is also Texas. So I doubt there would be a DA in the state that would want to press charges simply for the fear that this kind of case could set a precedent for future cases that could possibly infringe upon gun range owners (laughs) and gun owners and their rights while at a gun range. So we have to remember that, you know, a DA is an elected official. So if something like that were to happen while they're in office, Mm -hmm. they probably won't be winning too many votes in their next elections. And this is one reason why that being an elected position is problematic. But That is a true crime class for another day. Another day. (laughs) Another day. So I just wanted to put that little note in for you. I will always welcome a correction or provide clarity when needed. I love it, though, getting feedback about like episodes and like we like like we said we'll always provide corrections to anything that we say and uh, if if there's anything that you guys are questioning please 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 send it in and we will provide some clarity so if you are a new listener here Let's describe this. So our episode recaps alternate between the oldest available episode that we haven't yet covered to the most recent, alternating each week until we finally get to the middle of the Forensic Files franchise. 
For example, last week we did an episode from season one, and this week we are literally covering the very last episode of Forensic Files ever, the 21st episode of season 14 called Expert Witness, which is the 400th episode of Forensic Files. And boy, do we need all the disclaimers here, don't we, Dee? This one was extremely, extremely tough to get through. Rape, murder, domestic violence, a baby Mm -hmm. left in a crib during a violent crime, as I think any parent does, I have a strong fear of something happening to me and not being able to take care of my yeah. baby. So seeing it happen here to one of the victims, Tammy Tatum, whew, that is really upsetting. It was it was really, really tough. Up next, a killer seemingly gets away with murder. It was probably the cleanest crime scene as a detective I'd ever been handed. He took everything with him. For years, the case went cold. Then he struck again. Someone just left my house that raped me. Okay, do you know who it was? No. So much is happening in this opening scene to this episode. Oh my gosh. (laughs) We see horrifying and very real crime scene photos, then Mm -hmm. fake investigation reenactments, then a very real 911 call, followed by a quick but very, very scary reenactment of an attack on a woman, and then a quick soundbite by the survivor from that 911 call. I'm just not ready. I know, I know. And Peter closes out this gut punch of an intro by Peter saying, While the killer may have gone dormant, science did not. Science really did pull through, and I've never in my whole life rooted so much for science as I did in this episode. Like, I, that was one thing that I hated in school with science, <laughs> in high school especially. Like, I hated it. I hated biology. <laughs> I hated having to cut open a, I think it was a frog. I yeah, hated it. But yeah. I was rooting for science in this whole episode. And we get told that science in this case not only identified the killer, but it exonerated someone else. That right there literally got me on the edge of my seat. I am right on the edge with you, Drew. This episode mm-hmm. aired on June 17th, 2011. And before we get our tracksuits in a bunch about being Oof. back in the 90s, this episode will take us from 1993 all the way to 2009. So modern science will finally make an appearance. That will be interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, we meet Tammy Tatum and Jim Meadow in Longmont, Colorado. Because in episode three, when I did the whole Reddit review of the location in the 90s, it was such a hit. I tried Mm -hmm. looking up Longmont, Colorado, because I had never heard of it before. And I tried finding a thread on Reddit and see if anyone had anything to say. And all I could find was an article. It's from 2017, but it was referencing Mm -hmm. 2005 and that the city had a gang problem. So law enforcement created a three-prong approach and it drastically dropped the numbers of the gang activity. But then the article states, Longmont has 33 different types of gangs, but mostly only have one member. Wait, what? (laughs) And then another person commented, I didn't know the requirements got so relaxed. (laughs) Feeling like starting a gang might turn myself into police IDK. (laughs) What? And I was like, this is a one too- person gang. <laughs> I just thought it was too funny not to include because <laughs> this whole, this whole episode is so gang. depressing that this just, I just had to bring some sort of. Could humor. you imagine? Hey, Danielle, <laughs> I'm starting a gang today and I, I'm pretty confident because I'm the only member. <laughs> you know what? I just decided right now I'm your rival gang. Our tried and true narrator, Peter, doesn't go into how long they've been dating, but he says it was instant attraction, and soon after they move in together, they want to start a family. And boom, bam, bop, Timmy has a baby girl named Sadie. They show us pictures of a baby girl about the age of my daughter now, so I can't help but project a lot of feelings Mm -hmm. onto this episode. We then meet Tammy's sister, Kathy Smith, and she tells us what Tammy wanted most in life was to be a wife and a mother. But after Sadie was born, Jim went downhill. Jim Meadow had a major substance abuse issue. He would get drunk and get into scrapes. He had numerous DUIs. The way they describe Jim's drinking and violence just screams white privilege to me. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It does to me, too. He was drinking. He got into a fight with a customer at that store, actually tried to choke the customer. Jim was charged with disorderly conduct. If this man wasn't white, I can tell you disorderly conduct would not have been the charge. 
and he would have right. still probably been in prison. He violently assaulted people, and all he got charged with was disorderly conduct. Let us list the terms used to describe his violence. He would get drunk and get into scrapes. He got into a serious altercation. He was drinking and got into a fight. There is not a man in this room making Jim take a single ounce of responsibility. Not a drop. Then they tell us his violence was often directed towards Tammy. Our main talking heads here are Timothy Johnson, the prosecutor, and Detective Bruce Vaughn. Timothy tells us that Jim has a history of violently abusing Tammy while intoxicated and that there were reports of him strangling her. But I immediately asked what kind of reports, like police reports, reports Mm -hmm. from friends and family. This is important to know, Timothy. Sister Kathy is back and she keeps it on the facts. It was a very violent, abusive relationship. And, you know, she had confided in me and talked to me about this before. My mother was aware of it. My mother had told me about it. After his fourth DUI, he is sentenced to six months in a drug and alcohol treatment center that was walking distance to their home. I don't know when the laws change, but isn't that many? That's a lot of DUIs. And like, I'm pretty sure isn't that many DUIs charged as a felony now? Yeah, I know every state has different laws, but I found this on the Colorado Legal Defense Group's website that states that a fourth strike DUI offense can be charged as a class four felony. And that carries up to like a six-year prison sentence and $500,000 in fines. Oh my gosh. See, I knew, like, that's a lot of DUIs. Now we meet PJ Shields, who is the criminal justice reporter on the case, and she looks and talks very, very monotone. It's a residential facility where folks can live and work. I'm pretty sure if she was a teacher or boss of mine, I would be like your Darlene, your mom, and have... A very, very hard time staying awake. (laughs) I would laugh at that narcolepsy joke, but now mine is just as bad. I (laughs) fell asleep showing Oliver how to play like that Lego Star Wars game on Blake's (laughs) Xbox. One, I don't play Xbox or any video games. Two, I was so tired. It was winter break. Oh, my gosh. And I thought, you know what? This would be such a good idea just to get him to chill on the couch. Sure, dude. I will hit buttons on this controller. And all of a sudden, bam, I was out. Poor kid's like, mommy, hit A. Hit A. Winter break was really long. Really long. Are you saying that you you are turning into your Darlene? I am 100% turning into her. I fell asleep feeding Holland at dinner last night and Blake was like, just go to bed. And it was seven. <laughs> I dropped the spoon on her. <laughs> this is what this podcast has done to me. So wait, do we oh. think that your mom was just really tired in high school? Like because yeah. of you? <laughs> oh, uh, yep. <laughs> I'm well, just that saying. Hit a cord and I don't have therapy for two weeks. <laughs> now, what am I going to do with that? Now, after everything Tammy has been through with Jim, we learn that he has the audacity to make her pick him up every morning from the treatment center and take him to work. I'm not qualified to go into the psychology of abusive relationships mm-hmm. like this, but I'm just so sad for Tammy not being able to find her way safely away from this relationship. Unfortunately, she couldn't because that's when Peter tells us. But one morning, Tammy didn't show up. Jim tells police he walked to the apartment to find out why she didn't show up. And he finds the door locked. And then we hear his 911 call. Okay, calm down. The 911 call is a bit odd for me because he says he thinks she's dead, but then says she's blue and she's cold. Okay, pop quiz, Drew. Okay. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. True or false, 911 call analysis is a form of forensic science. Ooh, false? <laughs> okay. True or false, 911 call analysis is admissible in a court of law. What does admissible mean? <laughs> <laughs> like it can be entered into evidence. It can be used? Yeah, against to convict someone. Okay, I say true. True or false, you okay. can judge a person on their guilt or innocence based on linguistic patterns or how they react after the death of a loved one. What is linguistic parents? <laughs> I'm sorry. Language? I, yes. 
<laughs> like, like the words you choose to use in a reaction to a traumatic event. Okay, I say false. Okay. If you answered false to all of these, you would be correct. What did I say true to? Oh, the second the, one. Oh, the 911 call. What? Yeah. I guess I could call this a mini true crime class because I'm going to make it short, but in 2022, an investigative journalist, Brett Murphy, exposed a new form of evidence being used in cases to convict innocent people, and it's straight up a scam. What? Yeah, the ProPublica article will be linked in our show notes because I won't do a deep dive here since the 911 call isn't something used against Jim Meadow that we know of. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll touch on it in another episode, but it's worth learning about. This cop from Ohio has a full-blown business training detectives all over the country on a completely made-up linguistic (gasps) technique, and it is terrifying. You cannot detect guilt or innocence on any type of demeanor. Now, this isn't to say you shouldn't trust your intuition about Uh a person, if that means setting boundaries for your own safety. But if you're in a position of power in our legal system, this is not evidence that can be used in any way to charge or convict someone. What? Yeah. What? Yep, yep, yep. Brett Murphy in the article references three cases that Mm -hmm. it was used against these defendants. And it's just, it really destroyed their lives. And it's not, it's junk science. How it is going around is this this published study that was never peer-reviewed has been sent around from the FBI. And just because it came from the FBI, it was kind of like a blanket approval right, right, that right. it had gone through the right you know, yeah, the the right transitions and the everything. right transitions to be a legitimate science. It's really, really weird. Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and oh, and my favorite part is this guy is like, he doesn't like the public to know about it. And he's very cagey about his techniques and all this stuff. Cause he's like, well, if the public finds out, then they're just going to be able to, you know, get away with murder. <laughs> no, it's, he's a quack. Like it's right. this complete scam. Oh my gosh. That's yeah, crazy. But he actually believes, he actually believes he's doing something good. Now they show these crime scene photos again. I'm okay with the reenactment videos, mm-hmm. even though most of them are still hard to get through. But these, these photos, like, I had to, like, pause, uh, like, a few times while this episode was going on because this was a lot. It was a lot. We don't need to see these. No. And they show us basically everything, and it's horrifying. The staging of her legs, the bruising on her arms. Mm. We even see her chest and head, but they put black bars over her eyes and her breasts. Do we all remember when saying barium acetate was a scandal on like episode two? Right. Come on. I feel like a broken record talking about this, but this whole episode is scary. And the way Forensic Files produced and directed it is like pouring salt into everyone's wounds. Yeah. I mean, this was, it was just a lot. And we see police body cam footage, photos of the apartment, pieces of evidence mixed between the images of Tammy. And I'm just confused as to why they would say that if she was strangled, that her arms were above her head, that they would be posed. Like, what determines that? I guess it's just not a natural position. If you're being strangled, then become unconscious, your arms would probably like fall to your side, not go above your head. Okay. But then Peter tells us that the baby was unharmed and... If I spend more than a few seconds thinking about this, I feel sick to my stomach. I know. Medical examiners are able to determine that Tammy had been dead for several hours and show us the photos of her purple and bruised skin. We get it. We don't need to see it again. Like, it's just, I don't know why they do that. Shock value is why. Well, this finding, at the very least, removes any chance of Jim committing the murder around the moments of that 911 call. They also say that it was for sure sexually motivated, but there was no evidence of a sexual assault. And I'd personally like to put in a big record scratch right here. This was a sexually motivated crime. There was injuries around the breast area as well as the vaginal area, but there wasn't any clear evidence of a sexual assault. Sir, did you hear what you just (laughs) said? If that isn't considered sexual assault in Colorado, I'm terrified to find out what is. I know. And now since she was strangled, there are reports of Jim doing this to her. Of course, all fingers point to Jim. We keep seeing Jim's mugshot. He is definitely giving me Billy Loomis vibes from the best horror franchise, Scream. Do you like Scream? That film franchise is the reason I hate sitting on a couch that isn't against a wall. 
<laughs> Legitimately, though, if you put side by side Jim's photo and Billy Loomis's photo, yeah, like they I look, totally it's like see a, it. it's such an identical photo. It's crazy. Yeah, you really nailed it on that one. So when they start talking about Jim and they show his mugshot, mm-hmm. I just kept thinking about the intro and how they were like forensic science exonerates a suspect. So I had no idea where this I was know. going because I just kept thinking like how, right. how Me everything too. about this man is in line with him being the killer. Literally Me- everything. I mean, her sister, her friends, and even this fellow inmate at the treatment center, Rudy Gatan, gives a statement that Jim has said things like he could just strangle her. Who's exonerated? Right. You know what I mean? Records show he signed into the treatment center, but Jim is not only her common law husband, he's a physically abusive partner, he was the last person to see her alive, and he's the one that found her. How this man was never arrested actually blows my mind because I've seen cases where there are significantly less circumstantial evidence like this. And the person is still in prison. But like, wouldn't his alibi of being at the treatment center line up with the documents he signed? Yes, but they don't have the exact time of death. So Mm. this is a pretty wide range of when the murder could have happened. So they're thinking he could have done it before he left. But there is a big issue with this theory because no one is coming back to the point that his baby daughter was there. Right. I will touch on this later at the end, but I have a huge issue with the lack of information about what kind of father he was. They don't even mention what fatherhood meant to him, but they'd spent a whole minute on it, you know, about what it meant to Tammy. And right now we see letters that she wrote saying that the last time Jim hit her, it was really, really scary. And she's considering leaving, which would point to motive. The killer was also comfortable around the apartment. He took the time to use, get this, a towel. Seems that towels are really coming in handy as evidence to prove who's guilty in these cases. Because remember in the first episode? Okay, episode one tie-in. Episode one tie-in, the towels. Watch out, Henry Lee. (laughs) Detective Drew's coming for you. (laughs) Hello. But yes, yes, you are right. They mentioned this towel that was used to even wipe down Tammy. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't love what Tim and Bruce say here because they give the killer a touch too much credit. Agreed. There was no evidence that tied anything or anyone to the crime scene. It was probably the cleanest crime scene as a detective I'd ever been handed. I'm not sure what pictures they're looking at because clean, this is clean is not how I would describe any of it. I wouldn't either, but I think they're using the word to describe the lack of evidence left behind, Mm. but I totally agree. I mean, you can tell it's a very small place, and they show so many photos of blood in places around the apartment Mm -hmm. that it looked like she put up a fight. Yeah. This episode aired in 2011, so they could have included cleanest crime scene in regards to evidence in 1993. Oh, you know, I feel like if they'd said that, it would be a little bit more, uh, make know. a little bit more sense. Because what we find out later proves that the killer is an idiot who thought he was smart. It's not clean. The ego that must be required to commit a murder and believe you can get away with it. This went unsolved for years. So I guess maybe before modern advances in forensic science, the chances of getting away with it were yeah. higher. Yeah. Now we're moving along as they piece together the events of the night, but all I can still think about is the fact that baby Sadie is alone in this apartment with the person that murdered her mother. For anyone else struggling with this piece of it, I told myself that Sadie was just a great sleeper. She slept through it all, never bringing any attention to herself and only woke up like 15 to 30 minutes before Jim came and kicked in that door. Okay, now we can move on because that's the only scenario that I was like, okay, that's all that happened to poor baby Sadie. Let's move on. So they find a used condom in the trash and are able to test the DNA, which matches Jim Meadow. What? Like, and of course he says they had consensual sex, but no one buys it. And honestly, neither would I, because, but outside of the DNA from Jim, Tammy and their baby, there was one single foreign hair and it had the root attached to it. You know what that means, right? Uh, It's time for school. (laughs) Yes, it is. It's kind of interesting (sighs) this time. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Drew, I'll try to make it exciting and energetic. Don't sound monotone. Go ahead. Welcome to True Crime Class Hair Evidence. From Minnesota's Department of Public Safety's 2019 blog post, humans shed about 100 hairs a day from their heads. Hair sometimes ends up at crime scenes and as such is known as trace evidence. 
It can tell scientists about racial origin and the body area it came from. In addition, they can tell whether the hair was forcibly removed, artificially treated, or came from a deceased person. If the root is attached, it is suitable for nuclear DNA testing. Nuclear DNA is the genetic material that determines who we are, both as individuals and human beings. It is found, this is about to get real technical, it's found in the nucleus and in the mitochondria of the cell. And everyone has a unique genetic blueprint, even identical twins. Okay. So, if there is no root or tissue attached, the the DNA lab can still do mitochondrial DNA testing, okay. which is done by examining a cell's mitochondria, which float inside a cell but outside the nucleus. So it's not nuclear DNA. Got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got it? No. It sounds like a n- <laughs> all I think about is a nuclear bomb. <laughs> Okay. Then the article is like, all right, we've lost them. Wrap it up because it ends with, either way, it can help link a suspect to a crime. Okay. That's what I needed. That's what you needed. The FBI archives tell us that the condition of the root area of a hair allows the hair examiner to microscopically determine whether the hair was forcibly removed from the body or shed naturally. So hairs that fall out naturally have a club-shaped root. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas a forcibly removed hair will be stretched and may have tissue attached. The manner, yeah, the manner in which a hair was removed can have considerable value, especially when there is a possibility of violent contact between a suspect and a victim. So they can tell if it was forcibly removed. So, like, if you're if you are a stress puller, you know, people who like pull out their eyelashes and stuff. Yeah, you they can tell. Yeah. Wow. If you're ever kidnapped, just rip that shit out. Just (laughs) rip it out. Leave it everywhere, all over that person, all over the ground. Yep, yep. Okay, (sighs) so the final piece of evidence is a small amount of blood and skin found under Tammy's fingernails. Unfortunately, in 1993, a larger sample was needed to generate a DNA profile. And scientists were worried if they tested these samples and were unsuccessful there would be nothing left to test later when DNA testing improved. Let's go through all the evidence they have for Tammy's case before we get lost, shall we? Let's do it. There is a towel found used to clean up. A single hair is found on the bed. With the root. The root holds the DNA. There is blood and skin found under her fingernails. But it is too small. If they test it with 1993 testing capabilities, they could damage the sample. They have to save it for technology to improve. They decide not to charge Jim with her murder. There's enough probable cause, but not enough to convict. Then, three years later, three years, Renee Delaney calls 911, and it's quite possibly everyone's worst fear, to be woken up in the middle of the night with an intruder standing over you with a knife. Someone just left my house that raped me. Okay, do you know who it was? No. I didn't see him. He blindfolded my eyes with tape. But he had it in my hand tied together, too. How did he get in? I have no idea. I woke up and he had a knife on my face. Give it up for Renee for having the most courage for being able to come forward and be interviewed for the show. Like, I just kept thinking every time her interviews popped up, holy crap, what she's been through, and then to be able to just, like, sit just so confident in being able to tell her story and whatnot during this whole episode. She tells us she was also cleaned off with a towel. Of course, this is similar to Tammy because why? The towel. I'm actually shocked they linked the cases based on that because to go from murdering the victim to then letting the next victim live, Mm -hmm. that's backwards from what I've heard when it comes to violent predators and how they escalate. Right. Renee was clearly targeted. The rapist knew when her grandmother was going to leave in the morning and that she would be alone. So he attacked her for two hours. That's crazy. She tells us how she survived by what sounds like she disassociated during the attack. You just have to kind of shut it out. There's not a whole lot you can do. You can't really absorb what's happening to you. Timothy Johnson says it looks like the rapist had no knowledge of DNA. Duh, Timothy. I mean, he wiped down things with a freaking wet towel. These towels are really spinning you up. I know, I know. Please never buy me a towel for any gift, for any reason. They just now have a different meaning in my life. Like, I'm going to go shower tonight and be like, hmm, should I use this towel? I'm going to shake it off. (laughs) I'll just dry. I'll just naturally dry, air dry. 
Timothy says the attacker thought police could get fingerprints off the body, which is why he wiped her and everything else down. Yet the idiot leaves behind biological evidence. For fuck's sake, Peter, (laughs) we're all adults here. He left behind semen. Unfortunately, there are no matches to anyone that's already in Colorado's criminal database, so they start asking everyone in her circle to submit DNA. They're asking Renee's former boyfriends, her friends, and co-workers to submit their DNA for testing. That's a lot of people to step forward for potentially raping someone, don't you think? Yeah, so I saw your notes, because this time we did not do the whole blind notes thing. That was Mm -hmm. a mess. Um, (laughs) But I saw your notes, and so I kind of just did some side Googling, and Mm -hmm. I found on anewhope.org that 73% of sexual assaults are perpetrated by a non-stranger. And the fact that he knew she'd be alone long enough to stay there for hours, not to mention that, you know, he had access to her locked building. It was clearly a targeted attack. All the innocent people in her life were probably just like very eager to prove they were not involved. Oh, okay. Then. It wasn't until 10 years later, after Colorado officials were able to input all of the DNA samples from past criminal offenders into their statewide DNA database, that investigators finally got a break. They finally got a break after 10 years. 10 years Like, that is so long. That's so long. So long. I can't imagine how scared Renee was during that time. Right. I just hope for her own healing that her and her grandmother were able to move. Right. I I could not imagine ever being able to close my eyes in that place ever again. Right. But yes, this is a huge break in the case. As technology improved, Colorado was able to create a statewide database where they can input DNA from all felony offenders in the state. And the DNA from Renee's rape kit had a match. Rudy Dirtbag Gaetan. And boy, does he look creepy as hell. Crazy town that Rudy was able to get married and have two kids. Like, how on earth he's okay trying to have a normal life is beyond me. I just don't understand. That's actually really common with these offenders. What? Have you ever watched the show Evil Lives Here? Mm-mm. I doubt it, but I figured no. I'd ask. Yeah, so it's from the perspective of a family member or partner that was associated with the criminal of violent crimes or, you know, it could be a mother, a wife, a sibling, you know, it's either like a wife of a serial killer and she had no idea, or it's like the mother of a mass shooter or the brother or something. And it's really intense, but it's also a very interesting perspective that we don't hear too often. There's got to be a lot of shame around being associated to that person and not being able to intervene or help. You know, there's got to be a got to be a lot of emotions going on there, but it's a really interesting perspective. It's a very heavy show. Renee says the DA asked her if she was sitting down and honestly, does that actually help or is it just me like hates hearing that? No, I absolutely hate hearing that, but mm-hmm. at the same time I'm like, well what do I expect people to do? Just like Bam, here's the bad news. Right. I don't know. Right. I don't know. But I hate that. Like, it instantly fills me with rage. And I'm like, what? Just tell me. <laughs> but the worst part that Renee finds out on this phone call is that <sighs> he lived in Renee's complex. And that <sighs> is horrifying. That is so scary. That is so scary. Like, that's your worst nightmare. You know worst what I mean? nightmare. Renee even listed him as possible suspect the night of her rape. But the police didn't bring him in. Like, if Mm. someone is saying they think that it might be this creepy-ass old man who is her neighbor, why on earth does the police not do anything? I had the same question. They were asking for samples from everyone else, so I need to know, like, did they ask Rudy? Did they get an alibi from Rudy? Did they even look into Rudy? Trust those instincts, ladies. Renee was right. But even at her most traumatized, you know what that sweet angel warrior woman says? I don't want to say this because I'm afraid I'll be wrong, but it not sound kind of like one of the people in the next building. It might. Oh, it did. Yeah, but also awful. It's not. Well, he'll be nice to me. On her 911 call, she Ugh. identified him. But society's toxic politeness that little girls are programmed with at an alarmingly young age just kicked in. And in that moment, she is basically apologetic for making the accusation in case she's wrong. My heart just broke for her because I could totally see myself doing the exact same thing. She knew it. She fucking knew it. I know. Well, karma came for Rudy. 
Hi, welcome to Karma's a Bitch. A fully immersive experience, sometimes provided by the universe. So when you fuck around and find out... We're sometimes there to make sure you find out. We've placed an order for Rudy. First, you will get into a serious car accident. This accident will go far beyond just some broken bones. You will then get hooked on pain meds. You will start writing false scripts. We will make damn sure you get caught. Because you are way overdue. And what perfect timing. To be released from prison. You'll be required to submit your DNA to the state database. Our job here is done. We'll let the humans take it up from here. I hope they don't fuck it up. Humans are good at that, aren't they? They look into his past and Bruce tells us he knows Rudy. Jaw drop. Literally, my jaw was dropped. Rudy is the inmate that told police how he thought Jim Meadow murdered Tammy. Plot twist. Holy shit. I was honestly so confused. I had to rewind and go back because I didn't pay much attention to his name mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. I was more focused, you know, on the information about how Jim abused and threatened right. Tammy's life. So I was just like, wait, we met him before? We met yeah. him in this episode? When they said that Tammy told people that he was creepy and made her feel uncomfortable, my first reaction was, girl, I'm right there with you. Again, I beg of you, everyone, trust your intuition. Trust your gut. Not, trust your gut. Trust your gut. I'm not saying you have a right to go make things up about people because of how they make you feel, but right. you have every right to keep yourself safe if someone makes you feel otherwise. Right. Let's go through the similarities between the two cases, shall we? Let's do it. Both sexual assaults occurred in the morning. Oh, now Timothy is calling Tammy's attack a sexual assault. Both were wiped down with a towel. There was no semen in Tammy's case. But wait, the strand of hair with With the the root. root. When the bulb on the hair is intact. It's a sign the hair has been forcibly removed. 1993 science wasn't advanced enough to pull a DNA profile from that bulb. But in 2006, what is it now, Peter? It was there for the taking. It's a match to Rudy's DNA, and they found his DNA on multiple other pieces of evidence from Tammy's crime scene. Suck it, Rudy. We got ya. Clearly, DNA made this case. It not only identified the suspect in the case, but it exonerated someone else. Jim Meadow is, to everyone's shock, cleared as a suspect now. Crazy. Wild. When Rudy is confronted with the evidence, he says it was a consensual affair gone wrong. But... He was very clear on the murder. The confession tape is so frustrating that he can just sit there and just admit to all these things. Like, it just gave me the full-on Yeah. Now let's go through the forensic files' final theory. Rudy waited for Jim Meadow to leave the apartment and head back to the treatment facility. Rudy knocked on Tammy's door and she probably thought it was Jim at the door. Rudy forced his way into Tammy's apartment. They fought. Explaining the blood and skin under her fingernails. And a single strand of hair with the root found on the bed. He overpowered her. Then strangled her to death. Knowing Jim would be checked into the treatment center for the night. Rudy spent his time cleaning up fingerprints from the crime scene. With a towel. At some point, a sexual assault takes place. Because we know there were injuries. Injuries found in the breast and vaginal areas. But this was completely left out of their final timeline. Three years later, he attacks Renee Delaney. He knew she would be alone for hours. He also spent his time cleaning Renee and her apartment. With a towel. Peter says meticulously cleaning. That's a stretch. Among being a violent sexual predator, Rudy is also an idiot. And he still left behind what Forensic Files calls biological evidence. Semen. Grow up. The DNA from Renee's rape kit. Matched the DNA from the single strand of hair found on Tammy's bed. They got him. So, during all of that, they played the reenactment videos in full, both storylines together. And again, I ask, why must they play them again? I'm going to take a detour for a second because I was having a conversation about true crime media coverage with my friend Diane, who is... An amazing supporter of our podcast. Incredible. Love you, Diane. Love you, Diane. She's also a great friend and a super talented actress in Atlanta. So one of our 10 listeners is a casting director. You better get her on your rotation. <laughs> okay. Anyways, <laughs> we got on the topic of how gruesome reenactments and crime scene photos can be when shared in the news and TV shows and on social media. This topic is really triggering for her, and it ignited a very important conversation that now brings us to a valuable true crime class sourced by Diane Kirby herself. Okay. I did want to include that I did get permission to share this on the podcast. We are often spared gruesome photos of white victims. 
Instead, the media will show us photos of them with their family, smiling, doing what they love, anything to make them relatable. I imagine this is in an effort for the audience to really feel the weight of the loss. But when a black, brown, indigenous, or any person of color, even when it's a child, is victimized, they refer back to the footage of their murder over and over again. Mm -hmm. She said, the victim isn't just a victim. They are also portrayed as the violator in some way to convey that they did something to justify their victimization. Recognizing the disproportionate representation is crucial to be aware of because how we represent a victim when telling their story speaks volumes for how much we value their life and that we acknowledge how their death impacts their family, their friends, and their Mm -hmm. community who are suffering in unimaginable ways. Now, Forensic Files in particular is guilty of sensationalizing every single one of these crimes across the board. But as we discussed in episode one, the victims in these episodes are predominantly white victims, which connects us to our very first true crime class of the whole podcast, explaining that this is due to the show's format needing fully investigated cases using forensic science. And our legal system has historically proven to withhold investigative resources from crimes involving victims of any minority or disenfranchised community. So... It's a lot to connect and string through. But when I say that they sensationalize all of their crimes that they cover, I'm not saying Forensic Files is some sort of equal opportunity sensationalist. And considering this is the 400th episode and we're already broken records by episode five, begging for less gruesome crime photos and reenactments, I don't expect it to get better as we continue to move back in time. So... More modern true crime TV shows have started to catch on to more ethical and morally respectable ways of telling victim Mm -hmm. stories without sensationalizing it. But it is important to remember that it is still and always has been incredibly disproportionate when the victim is white versus when the victim is brown or black. Yep. I I completely agree. And I think that, that w- that's really important to say. Thank you, Diane, yeah. for, for what you have to say, because there's not enough light being brought to this. Yeah. And I'm glad that our podcast is... An open conversation. Yeah, exactly. Well, going back to the episode, yes. Rudy was convicted of a second-degree murder in the death of Tammy Tatum and first-degree sexual assault of Renee Delaney and sentenced to a total of 72 years for both crimes. He chose to kill her, and I got to live. I felt responsible to make sure I, you know, live a good life because hers was taken from her. Renee seems, honestly, like I said before, she seems like the sweetest woman. And after all she's been through, she can still leave us with an inspiring message. Well, Timothy didn't understand the assignment, apparently, because he leaves us with... Without the DNA evidence that was recovered from Tammy Tatum, this case would have never been solved. Then it's Sister Kathy who has to pull us back off the doom and gloom floor with how hope carried her through this. I always knew that the technology would catch up with the samples that they had. I never gave up hope. I never gave up hope. Uh, This had to be done. It had to be resolved. And I knew it would be. So now I have some updates. Although Rudy won't be eligible for parole until he's 103 years old, I still find his sentencing weak for the level of his crimes. He definitely premeditated Tammy's murder and should have been charged with first degree murder. And both cases should have been without the possibility of parole. But I found an article that quotes Rudy's defense attorney. And this helped me understand why the prosecutors went for the safer option that would guarantee a conviction for Tammy's murder. Now, Drew. Can you read me the next paragraph? Yes, I can. From the Colorado Daily, the defense attorney for Gaetan questioned Detective Vaughn on Monday, saying, A dead body is reported by Mr. Meadow. The police arrive and discover that he is a common-law husband of the victim, Miss Tatum, and you discover that he's a convicted felon. You discover from talking to witnesses that he has a history of domestic violence, and you have witnesses that told you that Mr. Meadow has given Miss Tatum a black eye recently. So you know how we said a fourth DUI is a felony in Colorado? Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. he did get a felony charge for that fourth one. Okay. But his punishment was weak, if that's what it was mm-hmm. for. Anyways, I couldn't find anything else about his felony charge, but the defense attorney isn't wrong. Jim Meadow didn't murder Tammy that night. But considering his violence against her, it was not 
if, it was when. Right, right, right. He is guilty of putting Tammy and his daughter in a vulnerable position. Not only did his violence towards her and the way he spoke about what he would do to her make her the perfect victim for Rudy. Right. But when he was sent to that treatment center, he kept her under his control, making her a single mother alone every night. He is not an innocent party here. He put her in multiple vulnerable and scary situations, and I hope he carries a burden of guilt for what happened to her and what could have happened to his daughter. Right. Now, no one talks about who he was as a father or his relationship with Sadie, and I really wanted that one detail. You know, for him to be the murderer, we would have had to believe that he was cruel enough, even if he was stone-cold sober, to leave his right. one-year-old baby daughter in that apartment with her dead mother all night? Ugh. Not a chance. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I just felt like that was a huge missing piece when discussing Jim Meadow as a suspect or while discussing any potential suspect. Right, Because a right. person that could leave an innocent baby with no one to care for them is another level of evil. Agreed. Agreed. Now, what I also found interesting is that Jim got custody of Sadie. What? Yeah, he got custody of Sadie. All those years, he was a suspect. He had full custody of her. So I was wondering if Kathy was going to touch on that point at all, but I just hope he was able to turn his life around and raise Sadie in a safe and loving home. In 2017, she actually appeared on Killer Instinct with Chris Hansen. Really? Yeah. And I think she's 24 years old. She's quoted saying, I'm glad nothing ever happened to me. I can't even wrap my head around what makes people snap like that. I couldn't find the episode to watch it, but I found that article from timescall.com. Oh, my gosh. Okay. One more thing. What? Oh, my God. Danielle. The Colorado Daily article said, Gaetan was waiting in her apartment for days. What? Yeah. I don't know. I couldn't find that anywhere else. I don't know where they found that. It's so weird. And I'm like, it's just, it looked like a very small apartment. Like, and didn't he have to check into the facility too? I just, I have a lot of questions on that, that I could not find answers for. I'm very sorry, but this is the weird part though, that I'm not sure why I was left out. Both Uh victims had their pubic hair shaved and he left the razors there. (sighs) And that's another piece of where his DNA was found. It was found under the fingernails, a towel, and a razor. Why would they leave that out? I have no idea, but that is a wrap for me. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Now I'm hoping all of you can understand why this episode was a lot. It was so hard. Well, bye, Rudy. Burn in hell. Now for our missing person cases we'd like for you to be aware of. From the Black and Missing Foundation's website and WUSA9.com, the Sacramento County Law Enforcement is asking for your help locating Bernita Marie Beard. She has become estranged from her family and they have not heard from her since January 11, 2020. During the last contact, Bernita told her family that she was moving to San Jose, California. She was living as a transient in Sacramento County and was last contacted by Sacramento County Law Enforcement on July 3rd, 2021. She's a black female with short black hair. She has brown eyes and is 5'9 and weighs about 140 pounds. She was born on May 12th, 1994. She also has a birthmark in the middle of her chin and a red rose tattoo on her upper arm. If you have any information, you are asked to contact the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department at... 916-874-5115. You can also submit information to the Black and Missing Foundation's tip line at blackandmissinginc.com slash tip line. And, and from the Bureau of Indian Affairs.gov and investigativediscovery.com is the case of Ida Beard. Ida Beard, a citizen of the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe, mother of four, lived in El Reno with her blind mother. On June 30th, 2015, Beard, then 29, told her mother she was going to visit some friends who lived nearby. She never returned. All we know is she was seen leaving, reportedly walking home, and then she never made it there. El Reno Police Department Major Kirk Dickerson, who joined the force in 2018, told people about the cold case. Lorenda Morgan explained to the outlet her cousin, never seen alive again, wouldn't just leave loved ones of her own accord. She's just so attached to her mother and children, Morgan explained. On November 1, 2021, around six years after Beard vanished, Her cousin's lobbying paid off, and a bill known as Ida's Law went into effect. The law called for the creation of the Office of Liaison for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons within the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. The goal is for the newly formed office to work 
across jurisdictions, including tribal, to investigate unsolved cases involving Indigenous people and to create a case tracking system. Beard remains missing and her case unsolved. She has black hair, brown eyes, 5'5", 120 pounds, and her picture will be on our social media. You can also submit case information or tips to the BIA one of three ways. Text BIAMMU and your tip to 847411. Call in tips to 1833-560-2065 or email OJS underscore MMU at BIA.gov. We also post the case information on our Instagram at Forensic Files Podcast, but first please go and follow at Black and Missing FDN and MMI Who Is Missing. Thank you. Okay. Oh my god. Episode five. Episode five. We did it. All right. So let's give all of our social media handles. Go away, Danielle. Come on. Go away. Nope. That was terrible. (laughs) No, I don't mean to say go away. (laughs) Take it away. Okay, on Instagram and TikTok, we are Forensic Files Podcast. And then on Facebook, you can join... Oh, you want to take that one, Drew? Yeah, I would like. It's the Forensic Files Duo Discussion Group. Nailed it. Hey, and here's a cool recommendation I would love to throw out there is if you are in any kind of Facebook group that is centered around podcasting or true crime or media and you see other posts where they recommend new things to listen to... We would love to be included as a recommendation. Uh, Podcasts, you know, they rely on their word of mouth. So I would love if, you know, somewhere deep in the grassroots, you know, connection, someone is sharing our content out there. That'd be so awesome. Our next episode is going to be from season one, and it is technically episode three. However, on streaming platforms, it's episode two. But if you're on YouTube, it's going to be listed as episode three. It's called The House That Roared. Going back to the beginning going back to the beginning yeah well thank you so much to everyone for tuning in to episode five we cannot wait for episode six and make sure you tune in and follow us on all social media handles until next time see ya thank you bye, bye. <laughs> i'm gonna pee myself <laughs> <laughs> boom bam pop <laughs> Bippity boppity boom bam. It's so much funnier when you say it. I can do this tonight, right? I can do this. I just need to like. <laughs> you can do it. Ooh, leave it at the door, Danielle. Leave it at the door. <laughs> do you? Did you get that? Do you, wait, are you? Do you? Did I mess it up? Oh, I gotta get my laughs out. <laughs> I gotta get my laughs out. Okay. Okay. Think they're out. <laughs> I can't get my laughs out. <laughs> oh my god, you sound so adorable when you say that. <laughs>